0: to estradiol illusions we are continuing our pride coverage and we're continuing our coverage in an area of lgbtq history that uh really really excites me because especially for uh trans listeners you know we we come across a lot of of people uh, on the internet or sometimes unfortunately in real life certainly in politics who Try to think of uh, being trans or uh, the transgender identity as, as something that's that's fairly new. I often make the joke that uh, they treat Caitlyn Jenner's Vanity Fair cover as kind of like a like an origin origin narrative for for trans people, and that of course couldn't be farther from the truth. And today we have the author of a very very interesting and. Uh, a times, very exciting uh, history on uh, trans people <laughs> called Female Husbands. We have Dr. Jen Mannion here to tell us about her book. Uh, Jen, do you want to tell us a little bit about yourself?
1: Uh, thank you so much for having me. Um, I uh, teach history at Amherst College. I'm also a lifelong LGBTQ rights activist, and I love the opportunity to reflect on, you know, queer and trans history and how important it is for those of us uh, living political and empowered um, lives in the present.
0: So let, let's start at a very uh, basic level with the book, uh, the title, Fe- Female Husbands. I think a lot of people who, who look at that are kind of... Um, Uh, wondering sort of what what exactly the, you you describe it in the book, the uh, definition of a female husband, but did you want to just talk a little bit about that for, for context?
1: Sure. So female husband is a category. The phrase itself was popular in the press in the 18th and 19th century. For most of that time, when it was used, it referred to someone who was assigned female at birth, who transgender in some way and lived as a man, and entered into a heterosexual marriage, often with legal paperwork, um, with a woman.
0: One thing that I I see a lot on the internet, it's a very popular anti-trans, quote-unquote gender-critical ideology. They say that uh, oftentimes it doesn't even focus, uh, their attention doesn't focus on uh, transgender men, but more so on transgender women, but as it relates to transgender men, there's this concept, we see this word all the time, of, of erasure and saying, oh, these people, especially historically, these people uh, weren't, weren't transgender men, they were just just butch lesbians. But as you point out a lot in the book, um, that, that's a distinction that uh, h- historically certainly has a different angle than from the way that we're approaching it in the year 2020.
1: Well, I think the first thing I would say to a gender-critical feminist who said that is, how do you know? Exactly. Yes. yes <laughs> I mean, it just, there's there's no basis for knowing. And any claim um, to certainty about an identity category for someone's gender or sexuality in the past is made up. And so I think that's one of the things that I would love about the history of sexuality, because it forces us to separate the labels and the categories that have been a really big part of queer and trans life since the 1960s, at least, from really nuanced, complicated, interesting lives and struggles and aspirations and loves, you know, that people uh, pursued. And so A really important part of the book is saying, I don't know what someone's gender identity was. They didn't tell us, but here's what they did. And here's how other people tried to understand them. And sure, if I were to apply our own current terminology, you know, some of them might have been butch lesbians. Some of them might have been trans men. But the only thing that's really true is that they were female husbands,
0: Right, and I, th- I think that's important We at the beginning of the month as uh, it seems like it's kind of an annual thing. People uh, sometimes want to try and make the claim that uh, Marsha P. Johnson or, or Sylvia Rivera, they were not trans women, they were transvestites, they were drag queens. Um, and, and the terminology is, is something that, um, you know, if you take a step back, the word transgender was, wasn't used back then. So obviously there is some 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 wiggle room but I, I i think that a lot of these uh sort of broader debates focus way too much on terminology especially you see it a lot in the uk press they try to turn like the phrase trans women are women into something that's uh over the top or extremely uh, that was common in uh a lot of the discourse surrounding the uh, author of the harry potter books who just made uh a big stink. Yeah. But I think. It, I think it's important to to your your book is is great at exploring the you know just presenting things as we know them with the facts and not trying to you know claim claim people into one category or another and I mean at the end of the day the, we, the 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 term transgender and the terms LGBTQ community are meant to be broad for a reason it's supposed to be inclusive rather than you know, let's let's divide our little section into a cubby, and then you know, this this is our part, and that's your part, and all of that kind of stuff. So I think I think it's really uh, effective in that, but also as as a historical history, uh, historical history, <laughs> um, as, as a historical record of uh, just just the ways that uh, there's there's so much in this in this book that essentially rings true of, of the way that uh, people are currently discussing, uh, you know, the LGBTQ rights, uh, particularly employment discrimination, but also from just the very perspective of uh, legislating identity, something that uh, at the beginning of last week we saw with the Supreme Court really taking a stance that said, you know, we're not, we're not going to draw lines as to who gets rights and who gets to, uh, who doesn't get rights.
1: Well, I think you could look at the Supreme Court case, um, and their decision is saying that firing someone for being trans and firing someone for being gay are both fundamentally discrimination based on sex. And it was a really important you know, victory for our community. But I also think it gets at one of the things that I also am trying to get at with the book, which is the broader structural issues uh, and, you know, kind of constraints that shape our lives. And right. I did write this for trans people. So it, it even though I don't ever claim, you know, that someone was a trans man or was a butch lesbian, I was definitely writing against 40 years of scholarship that simplified and did reduce Um, these people and experiences to the category of women under the rubric of quote unquote, passing women, saying that they were women, right? Who just claimed male privilege because they were patriots or because they wanted to enter into sexual relations with women. So it was really important to me to write this in a way that did speak to contemporary trans people and trans experience, because that is an angle and an interpretation that has been denied us and that we really need.
0: And I I think also, I mean, I, I really, um, I, I don't, I, I was transitioning, uh, from probably, I guess, a semester into my time in grad school. And, uh, I I did not find it to be a particularly welcoming place for, I mean, even LGBTQ people, but especially as a, as a trans person. And I I don't know a, a ton of people who have super, super positive experiences, uh, who are, who are a part of the community in academia, and yet at the same time, I think there is a broader. There's a great interest in in material like this. It's no. It's no surprise that somebody like Contrapoints is so successful, taking uh, material, especially in our early early videos, taking material that was essentially academic in nature and presenting it in a way that had flair and pizzazz, but also just <laughs> reached, reached, reached an audience that that wanted to learn this kind of stuff, but wasn't necessarily in a position where they would uh, have the access to it. I mean, I see trans people talking about reading like uh, Lacan or, or Derrida in their free time, and part of me is sort of scratching my head, like, why would you want to read Derrida in your pre- <laughs> in your private time, but I think, I think this history, not only as a, as a demographic reaching the trans demographic, uh, I I think you'll find a very, uh, excited audience for something like this. And it's written. I mean, I, I I spent a lot of time reading really old, boring, uh, stuff that kind of spins around in the same circles a lot in academic writing. And I, I was often criticized for being too, uh, flashy, what I guess be the term, but, it's a very it's 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 engaging, it's very straightforward. It's 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 very it's, it's a fascinating book. I really enjoyed it.
1: Thank you. Well, I we can thank my editors and my partner, I think, uh, for the fact that it's uh, readable and accessible and I think as I was doing the research and writing this again and again, we kept having conversations like who is this for? Um, and it was always for multiple audience. It was for my scholarly peers and my students and the general public and trans people. But whenever I felt like I had to choose, I chose trans people, um, hoping that it would uh, speak, speak to them and that it would be readable and not off-putting um, in the way that a lot of our scholarly writing is to people outside of academia
0: so i'm really so i'm thinking whether i want to ask yeah let's i in my head i keep saying i want to ask a sailor's question because i thought that was probably the most fascinating uh part of the book but um and i, th- I think that's a good jumping off point for one of the areas uh, of the sort of struggle for lgbtq rights especially trans rights that uh, is still an issue for practically all of us each and every day and that's Kind of the the idea of of passing set against the backdrop of of p- the people who think that being trans or or as a verb which you say, and uh as I was reading the book again, I was reminded of uh, last week when we had Sam fader, the director of disclosure on he was uh particular to note that um when we're talking about trans people in a historical sense, trans as a verb, sort of transgressing gender is something that's very important. And that's very present in your book. But
1: Yeah, that's a gift to us from early transgender studies. Uh, Susan Stryker, Lisa Moore, and Paisley Carras, um in this very early, uh, early in transgender studies, but not that long ago, um, issue of Women's Studies Quarterly, I think really laid out the framework for how we could have an expansive approach to these lives and experiences and not get bogged down with um, like narrow contemporary identity categories, but to really get at the bigger picture. And it's been so productive. I mean, it was essential for me in figuring out how to write this book in a way that made sense and other people are using it too. And it's, I'm, I'm so grateful um, to them for figuring this out
0: for us. Yeah. Cause I mean, I, I think that the way that a lot of these discussions are framed in a way of kind of stripping trans people of, uh, a- agency to, 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 own historical figures who uh, almost certainly I, I am very in favor of transgender as a broad umbrella that includes a lot of people, whether they're binary trans people, non-binary gender, non-conforming gender fluid. Uh, there's so many, in, in a lot of ways that the, the Expansive terminology, while it's uh sometimes difficult to to uh talk about because you're just dealing with so many terms, it's also it's important that we uh are, are able to acknowledge that there's that we're a diverse community, but I think for a lot of people that you can find comfort in the fact that a lot of these uh female husbands were facing a lot of the same problems that we we were in the sense that they were uh trying to dress and take on take on roles that uh, the term uh, stealth has kind of fallen out of favor but at a time when you could just be arrested for putting on uh trousers, that's certainly certainly very important and it, it's something that kind of makes you think you know, we can draw lines between uh, people back then and now in terms of the the kind of the struggles that we all had to face at some point in our transition?
1: You know, I think what your, you know, reflection makes me think of is, you know, our identity categories mean a lot to us and they help make us legible to each other. Um, At the same time, uh, sometimes the bigger world us. Uh, homophobic transphobic society doesn't really care about the nuance and you know we get subject to a lot of the same kind of abuse and discrimination and mistreatment Um, and they don't care over the finer point of um, how you understand yourself
0: yeah I would I would definitely definitely agree with that so I wanted to talk about I think probably the most fascinating figure and for, for people reading, I mean, uh, for people listening, um, uh, part of, part of the beauty of, uh, this book is the way that Dr. Manion uh, sort of presents it in very, uh, digestible, uh, session. If you're reading it, I mean, you could really, you could read a couple parts, uh, each night before bed, as I like to do. And there, there's a lot of accounts that are very, um, compact and, uh, very thorough, and my favorite probably would be James Gray, the the sailor who lived an extremely, extremely interesting life that uh, a lot of people were very uh, sort of puzzled by later, especially with how to cover him.
1: Yeah, just so, you know, James Gray... Is someone that a lot has actually been written about by scholars, and you know, sometimes you see them featured in maritime museums, and sometimes um, in reference to uh, the very famous uh, U.S. Revolutionary War soldier Robert Shirtliff, who is more commonly referred to um, as Deborah Sampson. So, yeah, uh, <laughs> what do you like about James Gray?
0: I so uh my my partner is always and actually my sister too to a lesser degree have always been uh fascinated by uh pirates by sailing uh I grew up sailing and as I was reading it it just it it struck me about how difficult it would be to present as 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 the opposite gender like like st- stealthily or or convincingly on, on a boat for, for that long a period of time and and really the big kicker would be often for these people uh, besides, besides the voice would be the fact that uh, in these places that, you, I mean you've got to imagine they smelled absolutely horrible but um, you'd also imagine that people would have pretty scraggly beards because uh, shaving and all of that would not be uh, terribly convenient and something you wouldn't be able to do all the time and yet here's James Gray who's you know, living an extremely wild life and, uh, did so, did so pretty successfully.
1: Yeah. So, yeah. Um, all those things are true. And I think, um, one of the thing reasons why they were able to do it is that they were probably thought of as a younger person than they were. So uh, sailors who were inexperienced, um, and, and described as, you know, green hands were often teenage boys um, who actually, you know, didn't have a lot of facial hair and full beards. So a lot of the people uh, like James Gray, who were later described as female sailors, um, were probably pretty young. And so people used, you know, that was one way that they, you know, weren't suspicious about why they didn't have a beard. But part of what I love about these accounts and in the James Gray account in particular, is it challenges us to think about, okay, well, how was manhood defined? Um, How was masculinity understood? And what were these issues? How did James Gray pass and what were the areas of life that uh, raised out? Right. And so uh, the beard, the lack of beard did become an issue at one point. um, But, As was often the case, uh, an excessive kind of sexuality and bravado towards women, Um, and and talking a lot about women and going out on dates with women um, uh, kind of bolstered up your manhood. And so we see several different moments in those records where James Gray was able to deflect um, concern about their gender and their manhood. By really kind of acting and living like a ladies' man, um, <laughs> so
0: it helps. It helps kind of put perspective. Uh, some people will, you know, when you say the phrase like "gender is a social construct," people say, "Well, what does that mean?" And when you look at a person like James Gray, who was able to essentially a- a- assimilate by 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 performing that sort of over the top bravado, the kind of uh, locker room talk to uh bring back to the uh last uh, 2016 presidential campaign something that was was used as a deflection um that is definitely a, a part of of sort of fitting fitting the role of of being male and uh, i guess it's sort of a theme that comes up throughout the book is you know people not necessarily caring if you were a man, as long as you sort of, there was almost like a checklist of, you know, did they marry? Did they, uh, you know, did they do this or that? And it was kind of seen sort of varying degrees uh, of tolerance sort of reflected the, the, uh, one, one's ability to be able to, to convincingly, uh, you know, to, to be able to convince everybody else that they were in fact who they said they were, which is something that that I guess now in today's day and age, with uh, we're we're trying to, to move away from, but back then it would it would be in fact such an important thing.
1: Well, heterosexual relationship and marriage, right? I mean, that was a cornerstone um, of society, and that would be all, all the proof that was needed uh, for for one. Um, to verify one's manhood. And that's why female husbands were so successful, for the most part, living decades in their relationships without being questioned or harassed. Um, because they had passed through, you know, they, they met a woman who, you know, loved or wanted to be with them. And, and, and that was a verification of their manhood. They uh, went, in most cases, went to a church um, had a ceremony, and they had a legally binding. Uh, marriage record. and so you know no those things alone would um, serve to keep other people from ever questioning um, that this person might have been assigned a different sex at birth than they were living in their adult lives.
0: yeah, I, I noted you noted um later in the book the case of Annie. Hindle, I I I can barely even read my own handwriting on the note. Um, Annie Hindle, is that the name? Yep. Yeah, this was kind of seen as as a, a very early precursor to the idea of you know it, it legitimized gay marriage in a weird way. You know, a, a very long time before any sort of country or society was was really coming around to that idea. And I guess that's also kind of the the importance of not taking you know, uh, issues of homosexuality and issues of gender identity and totally separating them because these are things that, that do tie into each other and they, one does definitely does affect the other.
1: Yeah. I mean, so that's, that's kind of actually how I started this project. Um, we know, um, you know, those of us who are queer and trans and who studied, if you studied the history of sexuality at all, that, The turn of the 20th century was this really key moment where these categories um, were defined, uh, you know, of homosexuality and sexual inversion. And as sexologists were kind of making up these categories to try to make sense of people like us, they fused together uh, gender nonconformity and homosexuality. So in the early 20th century, uh, the only true homosexuals were effeminate men and masculine women. Like that was an actual moment um, when those ideas were developed. And my original question for this project was pretty open-ended. It was, well, what did everybody think before then? Right? What did they, how did society think of People who, at that time, I called masculine women when I started this project. What was fe- how was female masculinity understood before it got fused and defined as something deviant that signaled homosexuality?
0: Yeah, that was something that I encountered a lot in uh, my my grad school studies. I had a professor at Claremont uh, named uh, Henry Cripps who would would blame basically every uh, Issue of of homophobia and and sex or transphobia on um, sort of the the concept, Foucault's concept of of we the other Victorians kind of looking at that that specific era as as the time when there were a lot of uh, legislative measures taken, but a lot of times that would often be against uh, homosexual men. So I guess what what is also fascinating about your book and the way it's kind of an inverted. A lot of the uh, a lot of the transgender uh, rights debates now almost predominantly focus on uh, trans women to the point where even if you look at something like the case of Mac Beggs, the trans male uh, re- wrestler in Texas who was forced by their archaic and ridiculous rules to wrestle against women, and in the reporting of that, uh, you get a lot like a, a disturbing amount of outlets. Looking at that case and saying, you know, get, getting it completely wrong, looking at, at, at Mac Beggs as a transgender woman instead, and it's just kind of like a facepalm, like, get your bigotry right, you fool.
1: <laughs> <laughs> you know, I still think, it, you know, and this is one reason why I just focused on one category to kind of help us tease these things apart, because I think you're right. Transphobia functions differently for trans women and trans men. And if I were to draw a conclusion from my book, I would say at the end of the day, we still live in a very patriarchal, sexist society. And even if female husbands or, you know, contemporarily trans men uh, did something that people didn't want them to do or they made them uncomfortable, there's still a social respect for wanting to claim the the like a, 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 to to claim more social power, right? And so, if if we're in a patriarchal society and men have more respect and more authority, that that is still ultimately respected, and that really frames some. Just I'm not saying that it's easier that it's easier, but that definitely frames a piece of the lens um, in how people approach trans men, and I still think you know definitely speaks to um, the misogyny and the transphobia that trans women face.
0: Yeah, I, I definitely agree. And you also, I mean, you, you get into the, the idea that a lot, a lot of the, um, a lot of the, the considerations that the female husbands had were, were sort of in the, the economic realm of, uh, you know, needing to provide for families, we're in a we're in a time period where the uh, single parent or, or the having having only one parent working would not be enough for a lot of people. And a lot of times, your ability to to be the breadwinner for your family was tied to you know masculinity. Men were supposed to women women were allowed to be paid less. Uh, you 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 could earn more as a man, and and that a lot of these situations you're dealing with people who are, uh, you know, there, there, there's a lot of considerations to just, just the idea that, that, you know, this is, and and this is a, the patriarchal world that we live in now, but really tenfold on steroids. There's it's, you, you have to, I mean, everybody here is living in a male dominated world.
1: Yeah. So I think that's why I love reading these accounts when, you know, that are also sometimes hard and painful when, um, uh, somebody gets kind of caught and their gender is questioned. Um, a lot, female husbands can instantly fall back on economics and say, well, I needed to make a living, uh, to support my wife and I could make more money living as a man. Now, whether that was the whole truth, whether that was a partial truth or whether that would just, happened to be a a consequence, right? Um, For someone who was male identified and, you know, might have felt something akin to what we call gender identity, who was going to transition no matter what, right? But one of the side effects, uh, the the benefits was, yeah, then they would have a whole other world of occupations open to them that were more lucrative. And so just trying to kind of, you know, read between the lines and say, okay, was this, was this what they really thought? Was this what really motivated them? Or, you know, are they giving kind of a strategic excuse to uh, earn the sympathy of the person who is questioning them?
0: Yeah, I think that's uh, it's just so interesting the way that you uh, talk about that in the book. You even really get at the sort of the notion, the origins of the phrase wearing the pants in the relationship, which I thought was uh, certainly interesting. <laughs>
1: Yeah. I could, could have, somebody could write a whole book on that. <laughs> I mean, there's definitely, I think that's like an 18th century story um, that's much more, has much broader implications in terms of the way that phrase is used often in a conventional heterosexual cisgender marriage um, to criticize a woman who is taking stepping out of line taking on too much authority or responsibility or asserting her opinion too much
0: and yet i mean it's not like there were really a ton of fail-safes in place for families where a husband would would die of of really whatever circumstance which i mean it happened all the time and there wasn't really we're not talking about a, a great era of of like the government being super helpful for to people in those kinds of situations and and people were forced to live in uh male dominated worlds where if if things didn't go their way i mean there's not not really much you can do about it
1: yeah i mean this is definitely a laboring you know working class story uh people are mostly poor um and yeah i agree with you especially for a widow um, or a single woman. Um, There's no government uh, safety net. I think the only thing that I would say at least from the colonial America side is that um, poverty was a little less stigmatized um, than it would become. And there was a stronger network of uh, poor relief from religious organizations. Um, that could be a source of support um, for people in these situations
0: and you, you noted at one point in the book and this is another sort of uh, thing that makes you sort of uh, think exactly about how the the era they lived in back then and the era now not much has changed you noted at one point that uh, there were people who viewed the, the women's rights uh, movement, feminism itself as, as something that Threatened the institution of marriage, and I was like, well, gee, "Where have I heard that before?" It, <laughs> it was just ten, ten, ten years ago. Uh, <laughs> the thought of you—you you get people on on actual like mainstream outlets on television saying if you allowed gay people to marry, you'd get other people who would want to marry their goats or their dogs or stuff, and you could just you could just trace lines back back to. Hundred years ago, it's the same same nonsense, just with a slightly different packaging.
1: Yeah, well, and you know, and that's one reason why I think when we the extent to which we can, uh, you know, finding common cause between the needs of trans people, the needs of gay people, the needs of uh, women, the needs of uh, racial minorities, like all oppressed groups, like that, you know, broader intersectional um, approaches to social rights right and social oppression uh is definitely the way to go because they don't have that many lines they definitely and and arguments they kind of rehash the same ones over and over uh, against us um and just hope that we're not going to stand together
0: so there were a couple cases where there would be female husbands who died and they would be discovered as female later and there would be this kind of uh this, this medical fascination of, you know, how, how could this be as if it was kind of like I, I had images of kind of like stuff from, from like the crucible in my head about <laughs> this sort of other world, other worldliness. And I mean, we, we can accept that, that, that medicine back then is, was far more primitive. I mean, medicine to this day, it, it, it can't really totally explain a lot of, uh, the nuances of, of gender identity, but, there seemed to be this this the the medical phenomenon uh, uh, of some of these these uh, cases was just very interesting. Could you talk a little bit about that?
1: Yeah, I think I think you're right to your point. Even though medicine was so rudimentary, um, the desire to have a medical explanation um, and and kind of why that was so important um, is not really easy to understand. Um, I think in, you know, the case of James Allen, who I think might be one of the best examples in the book, um, it's partly tied to the fact that they died in a workplace accident. And so there were, you know, just questions about whether there were unsafe, you know, work conditions at the dock, was the shipbuilder going to be held responsible? What was the cause of death? Um, And so that they were taken in, um, for an autopsy because of the site of their death. Um, and in that time, of course, is when, um, one of the dressers who I think was a medical student, um, who, you know, uh, the, uh, the, the body, the clothing on the examining table, it's a, it's a, that person seems to be a very weathered man, right? And their wife is uh, down the hall and everyone is referring to them as uh, a man named James Allen. And so when he does the examination um, and finds that this person has the body of a woman um, kind of, you know, freaks out basically. I think the other interesting point though is The other doctors involved were really invested uh, in the idea, and also co-workers, that James was intersex, Um, and of course, that's our current, you know, respectful term for the the movement. At that time, the scientific term was hermaphrodite, uh, someone who had um, both male and female parts, Um, and so there was... They, they didn't want to – they didn't believe they couldn't accept that someone who was assigned female at birth and was a female anatomy could pull it off and could transgender and live fully and successfully as a man for decades and decades on end. They said, well, there must be something about them, right? There is some way that physiologically, hormonally – That they are, you know, really a combination of the two, because that's the only way um, that somebody could do that. I think that was their, even though intersex people did not enjoy respect at this time, um, they were certainly not respected. They were treated as if something was wrong with them, um, that somehow that was a more comfortable, safe explanation for people to make sense of those who transgendered. They sort of hoped Because that way, um, it might only be a small minority of the population who could or would ever do this. Um, But if the person was not intersex um, and had female anatomy and lived their whole life as a man, then uh uh-oh, we might have, you know, a lot of people might be doing this.
0: And that kind of, that line of thinking also sort of applied to a lot of these situations, how they would treat the the wives in these instances as... Oh you couldn't have possibly known it's not your fault everybody was was deceived it's like a historical reference of uh, the the concept of the trap which is yeah. uh, popular in anime uh send your book to Ray Blanchard he'd love that he's really interested <laughs> in, in anime these days but uh it, it, it was fascinating because I mean you do have at least one example in Charles Hamilton of, of somebody who did appear to to deceive their, their, uh, wife. But at the same time, it's, it's, it seemed like in a lot of these other cases, you're, you're the, the, the idea that the wives were these sort of ignorant people couldn't have possibly known. And be, be, for the specific reason of they couldn't have possibly known, cause if they had known who would have, how would this have been able to happen? How would they have fallen in love? I mean, it, it, it seemed as though the, the projection was really strong on, on society in this, this regard.
1: Yeah, I think to me, that's one of the saddest parts of these stories, the way that uh, the queer wives get really pressured into denouncing um, their love um, and denouncing the fact that they did know the truth about their uh, female husbands and they loved it about them. It was part of their bond um and to some you know in 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 the case of James Allen their wife really to kind of stop from being harassed um and attacked in the press and in their community said you know you're right i did i had no idea um that my husband james of 20 some years was you know assigned female um i didn't know all along and i you know i just that's so sad to me. Um, and it's also erases, you know, queer history and it definitely erases, you know, queer fems, um, uh, from the, the, the record books in terms of what we can know and how we can write about them.
0: Yeah. And, and, A lot of that is reflected in the ways that they are uh, written about after death. And right before I even hopped on to do uh, this interview, there's another case of a uh, black trans woman who was murdered and uh, the news reports and the police reports uh, have misgendered them, they've misgendered, they've used uh, her dead name and stuff, and it's 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 an issue that 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 is who knows how long it's gonna still still be an issue because it's you know these these people who who profess their identities in life successfully and then you just you you get it kind of uh, erased in history and it, yeah it's so, I mean it's, sorry oh no I was just gonna say it's just so sad to see
1: well it's outrageous I mean dead naming trans women right now in the twenty first century. Uh, now that there's so much education that's widely available, the trans rights movement is visible, uh, right, and accessible, and there's just no excuse for it. It's it's just, you know, pure violence. And I would say part of what is interesting about some of the old stories that I read is the newspaper editors sometimes, mo- you know, sometimes mocking. The gender of someone uh, through their use of pronouns, and actually sometimes trying to be really respectful um, uh, in, you know, saying, "Well, how should I think of this person? How should I understand them? What pronouns should I use?" And you know, if every reporter in the present took that same approach, who was this person? How should I understand them? How can I re- be respectful? And and made their decisions based on those questions. We wouldn't see all this dead naming.
0: Yeah, and you, you, you also bring up the point that um especially as it relates to newspapers, how they were uh it was important that some of them were respectful because for for most people books were too expensive. You wouldn't you wouldn't read that. Newspaper was the most common uh way to get information. It was the most accessible, especially for the uh working class and for people who were poor who, you know, would still be facing this these issues, but they wouldn't Uh, pick up a uh, book, just as, you know, a lot of academic writing these days are hidden behind paywalls and stuff?
1: Well, that's one of my favorite things about this, actually, because these stories just popped up in newspapers everywhere, small towns, big cities. And it might have been, you know, about a person who lived down the street, you know, like, Right now, contemporaneously, or it might have been an old story about someone, you know, from London 100 years before, but that anyone reading the newspaper in the 18th and 19th century, you know, could stumble upon this. And I just think about in terms of uh, seeing people who question their gender and, and and transgender and seeing, you know, being able to just see that story in a newspaper, um, how validating that would be, um, for a reader who might not have access to language or to community.
0: And that's, that's, I mean, it's really not all that dissimilar from the situation we have now. Trans people are are, are really kept out of newsrooms. There's not a ton of trans representation among journalists. I mean, I practically name them all on on both hands there's uh and and as a result you've seen outlets like youtube or even a place like tumblr become these uh sort of uh safe havens for trans people to find community because they can't see that reflected in, in the mainstream press
1: absolutely and so the internet has been so powerful and amazing Um, for trans people finding community but there's no excuse again especially now that stories about trans people are in the news all the time and for you know major media outlets to not have uh, trans reporters um, on staff who are able to cover these stories with a greater degree of nuance uh, and understanding um, also is is not okay anymore Uh, you know in
0: Twenty twenty. Yeah, I mean, in the wake of uh the wake, wake of the J.K. Rowling stuff, I I personally emailed a couple editors with corrections or like the way that you frame this is ridiculous, yeah. like all of that. And oftentimes, like I I got a couple notes from from reporters who had who had whose tweets were often way more pro trends than reflected in the writing, and they're basically like, yeah, I got stonewalled by my. Uh, by my editor and and that's that which is uh sad but you know that's kind of sadly the the way as your book illustrates that's the way that uh it was and I, i i guess you know you can't help but when when an editorial uh when people in editorial power take this position where they're framing a narrative a specific way it has to have like a Trickle down effect. As I was reading your book, I kept thinking about this novel that came out uh, a while ago, back in 1928, called the The Well of Loneliness. Are you familiar with that of one? Of course. Yep. Yeah. So uh, for for listeners, it, it's it's kind of regarded as one of the earliest uh, lesbian novels. Although, when I was reading it a few years ago, I kept thinking to myself, this is this is this, uh the main character's name is Stephen, isn't really so much of a lesbian as, as somebody who's, who's who's very masculine i was thinking i was steeped in game of thrones stuff at the, at the time i kept thinking like this is basically brand of tarth uh it and i i kept thinking about like how, how if this novel was written in today's day and age how different it would be just because of the way that people looked at that kind of stuff back then
1: Yeah. You know, I had a similar experience when I was reading some of the sexology records from the same era. And I thought, this is all about gender. I mean, when they have someone assigned female who is attracted to women, the whole conversation and analysis is about their masculinity and gender. It's very little about sexual desire. And You know, I honestly think that some of that conversation just got so dominated by the cases around gay men um, that what was really going on for people assigned female or you know masculine women at that time was more about gender and sex, and that about than sexual desire, and that just got lost because. You know, that wasn't the gay male story. So I agree. I haven't read The Well of Loneliness in, in a few years. Um, but I think I also might, you know, have some different questions and um, think about some things differently um from my current perspective.
0: Yeah, it's it's a very tragic read, but I, I think more so probably from the perspective of this person is Definitely more more masculine than the the writer at the time was was giving them credit for. But uh, an- another thing I wanted to talk about. So. You see it a lot in in anti-trans activism and stuff. The the idea that if we let transgender people use the bathroom, they're going to either themselves become predators or they're going to open the floodgates for predators. And you see all the time these these sort of isolated instances of a few. Uh, there's a couple of cases in England of uh, some some transgender prisoners who who did things that are that are. Uh, objectionable, and I, I, I think that that's important to talk about. You include in the book the case of uh, Samuel Pollard, who is is did not seem by uh, most accounts to be a particularly good guy, and I, I think it's okay to mention that kind of stuff because it's not all necessarily wine and roses.
1: Yeah, I think a lot uh, and not just Samuel Pollard I think, you know, several of the husbands were Um, listed as you know drinking too much um, maybe not respecting their wives at times and yeah trans people are human and so all of the um, possible range of human character and behaviors and experiences that uh, everyone has is certainly true for trans people. Um, I also think that you know, the stressors, uh, and the barriers of, you know, living a trans life are tremendous and people, you know, I, you know, the female husbands that I'm thinking of that are, you know, resorting, um, to, you know, drinking too much, both to, you know, kind of escape, um, but also to shore up their manhood, because that was like the way to be again, you know, a certain kind of working class masculinity was going to the pub every night and drinking too much and not respecting your wife. So trans people aren't immune from the larger structural social norms uh, that we live in relation to, um, whether it's patriarchy or violence or you know things like that.
0: Yeah, and I, I think it's important because you you see it all the time. This sort of this this. Theory of you know quote unquote the good ones you see it with racism Islamophobia homophobia sexism and all of that and I I, I think I, I, you, you, we still we still sadly are seeing it a lot in the the transgender rights debate but you have to like acknowledge that you can't you 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 can't just equality doesn't hinge on the behavior of a of a select few and I I, I just think that. Reading that is 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 kind of a reminder reminder of of uh, an important thing that uh, so many people still need to be reminded
1: of. I agree with that, but I also I still don't think that is a justification for the bathroom question. Yeah. being used as an issue to bash trans people. Um, it's course. you know people finally did some you know studies and were actually able to come up with some data. I can't remember it off the top of my head. Um, about actual, you know, interpersonal violence in bathrooms. But as we all might guess, um, the people who commit that are cisgender men um, with no regard to to the signs on the door. And so, you know, pinning that, you know, kind of playing on people's, you know, real fear of personal safety and pinning that on trans women is just completely unfounded and, and so hateful.
0: Yeah, it's uh, and there is especially in uh, England there have been a lot of cases where um, cisgender women who who maybe have shorter hair or or, or look you know quote unquote masculine conventional masculinity uh, they've been verbally assaulted sometimes there was a case I, I saw it in the the media uh, earlier today of a, a trans woman who was assaulted by a cis woman in the bathroom and it's it's just all all nonsense but um i think that your your book really does do a great job of not only just tying so much of this stuff back to uh, issues that we currently face but explaining a world uh, of tra- transgender uh, w- a point where which your book kind of ends on is is the sort of the advent of the um surgeries and obviously hormone replacement therapy was not available to the people within the era that your book covers. But I think it, it, it's an important lesson of, of what life was like back then before these uh, life-saving treatments were made available.
1: Yeah, I think it's an important connection to make. It is an important moment, um, the transition uh, towards medical care, right? And gender-affirming medical care changed uh, what was possible and how people experience and embrace their trans identities. Um, I think one of the important things for us also to know is, um, pe- you know, people might've been okay. Like the 19th century might've been okay. <laughs> like uh, the expectations uh, and the possibilities were just completely different uh, than they are now. And so it's also not helpful i guess or fair for us to judge ourselves against them and say well our trans identity is better or um we even necessarily have safer better um trans lives and resources it's it's pretty complicated and so because with visibility has come a whole other um batch of pushback and problems as we've just be- been discussing um around the question of bathrooms but that said given what we know now about gender-affirming medical care and all of the data from our current situation, that uh, trans people who have access to hormones and other gender-affirming surgeries are better off. And that's a really important civil rights and human rights issue that we also you know, do need to fight for.
0: Yeah, you see that a lot in... Um the the debate over the you know the right for transgender children to have medical treatments and in a lot of ways the the emphasis on medical treatments is really overblown because you know there people aren't having surgeries performed on minors unless in in increasingly i mean in in, in rare situations and puberty blockers are not shown to be these sort of demonic things that people on the right often portray them as but i think kind of the the sort of underpinning a lot of the uh a lot of the ways that that people, a lot of the rationale behind what these people are are fighting for is is the fact that trans it, kids who transition at an early age are are you're, you're not really able to tell like they pass completely and passing is not something that I'm personally all that interested in but but for so many other people it's it's such a big deal and I think that a lot of what's what's kind of uh, driving this debate against transgender children is they want trans kids to go through the wrong puberty so that society will not forget what they are. Oof. Uh,
1: that's I, I, I don't disagree, but that makes that upsets me. Um, I think they might realize they've lost the fight um, against trans adults. Right. So yeah, I think kids are too. a different frontier. Um, I would say that if you know or are or work with transgender college-age students, um, you would quite easily come to the conclusion that, and and especially trans college-age students who were denied or didn't have access to gender-affirming health care as teenagers, um, or even also sometimes when they're college-age, that they would have been better off if they had, and that there is a degree of anguish um, and alienation and suffering that they're just forced through in order to uphold somebody else's social norm. That's it's a completely unnecessary suffering that I don't see how anyone um, can defend. And again, now we actually have data um, of mental health and well being of, you know, people who before and after they've had access to hormones and people who haven't had access. And um, it's always better. Right. I mean, it's just like statistically um, proven. um, If you care about humans and you care about trans people, that there's like no justifiable basis on which to deny someone medical treatment.
0: Yeah, I agree completely. I've spent a fair amount of time around trans kids and it's more so probably their parents. And it just, the way that this debate is framed and, and part of why it's framed this way is because of the media's sort of limited attention toward it. But I, I just, you know, I'm screaming at the TV or sometimes at the computer of like, you guys just spend 10 minutes with these people. You'll see that this is yeah. like not a category that, like, just tone down the, re- like, we don't, oh, yeah, just, mutilation all of that kind of stuff but that's that's a well it's for...
1: yeah it really stokes people's fears. so that you know people who if they had all the information would be sympathetic supporters of trans kids getting what they need are able to you know just be reactive um and against it because of the way it's being framed i think it's so disin- disingenuous and cruel
0: yeah, and th- I mean that's just another reason that people need to read this book because you'll see so th- there there is uh, you'd be so hard pressed to find a single element of today's transgender debate. I mean, it, it's sad that like uh, so much of this debate goes in kind of circles, what it, it seems, but you can see why it goes in circles because all of this stuff really existed way back when, and the history is is repeating itself. But as as we as we start to wrap up the uh episode I just wanted to ask kind of what 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 you what what the sort of broad takeaway you'd like since you said that you know you wrote this book for trans people. Uh what do you think the the big kind of takeaway that you want people to um come away from this book with? That's very um, broad.
1: <laughs> well maybe you too can just see yourself represented in a regular old boring history book.
0: <laughs> it's
1: modern. um uh that that none of our identities or our fights are new. Um, They've been around for a very long time, for better and for worse, as you said. Um, And also, I think, to really just remind people how uh, distinct, you know, sex, gender, and sexuality are. And that we all get to have all of those things.
0: Yeah, I I agree. And this is, it's an important not just for for trans people, but I think really anybody in the the LGBTQ community or allies wanting to understand what... Because everybody has a right to their history. We have, you know, humans have been around for a long time. And I I feel like a lot of the time, terminology around trans people is done in an effort to basically say, you all started with Caitlyn Jenner. And it's just like, nope, that's that's ridiculous. And, you know, it's so great that we live in an era where there are films like Disclosure and books like Female Husbands and uh podcasts like this one that everybody's listening to. Um <laughs> uh, <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, it's 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 all about agency and um it, it's important we we need to we need to be able to uh explore our past and I think that you've done a great service to the community in in writing this.
1: Oh, wonderful thank you so much it has been an absolute pleasure talking with you um it's so fun to talk with someone who's read the book closely and is just really deeply reflecting on some of the implications and the larger questions It's been a pleasure
0: well thank you i your your publicist first reached out I think a week before I was about to have my labia labiaplasty and I almost I almost <laughs> brought the book with me to Arizona, but I'm like, you know what? I'm lying in bed recovering. This is not the subject that I um, want, to be, <laughs> want to be reading about, but I read it, I read it in recovery when I got back and, uh, it, it's fascinating. I, I couldn't recommend it more. And, uh, Dr. Mannion, I'm so, uh, grateful that you came on and you could, uh, supply now when, when people ask about the pride coverage of 2020 for estradiol illusions, I could say, We covered about a 300-year span of trans history. Who would have thought? It's great. But uh, thank you so much.
1: All right. Thank you. Take care.
0: And uh, to everybody else, thank you so much for listening. And we will see you next time.